And I've been thinking over the last few days about a sort of marginal parallel with a world that I don't usually inhabit, and maybe you don't usually inhabit, but even if it's not our thing, we'll be aware of it, which is the world of comic book superheroes. Now, whether you're a Marvel fan or a DC fan or neither, you'll be very aware that actually there's a pretty standard formula for writing a comic book superhero. There has to be, to start with, a dire situation, a dire emergency, something that no one can solve or sort, perhaps even something that no one else sees coming, something that threatens the world, something that threatens an individual or a community, and then there has to be a hero. And that hero's particular talents, particular character, and especially their particular gifts, their superhero powers, just happen to perfectly match the dire situation that the world is facing. These latter chapters of Isaiah speak into a situation that is dire. God's Old Testament people, Old Testament ancient Israel, are in the situation that none of them can deal with. They're in exile, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home. And they're there in a way that will probably be for their uh, extinguishing as a race, extinguishing as a people. They're losing their moorings. They're losing their way. They are in a dire situation. They need someone to rescue them. And what we find is that as we begin to read these chapters from Isaiah 40 onwards, as uh, God's prophet comes and speaks with this incredible clarity from God into them, as he begins to sort of uh, flesh out this job description for what we might call a hero, what he begins to call God's servant to come and rescue them. What you discover is that this servant, this hero of God, looks pretty much different to any of the heroes they've had so far. Different from Abraham, different from King David, different from the prophet Samuel, uh, different from uh, Queen Esther, different from all of those who've come before. And actually you realize that that's a good thing. Because time and again, as you read that story from the beginning of Genesis up to the point where Isaiah begins to speak, you realize that those whom God has sent have singularly failed to be heroes. In fact, most of them have gone from hero to zero pretty quickly. And what you found is that neither they nor God's whole people together have managed to rescue his people, but more than that, have managed to rescue a much wider constituency have actually managed to bring God's rescue to his whole world because that was his point. That was the task he had given to Abraham, to David, to the people of Israel, that they were meant to live out the life of God in such an astonishingly attractive way, in a life filled with joy and uh, surrounded by wisdom, that all of the world, Jew and Gentile alike, would be drawn in to God's kingdom, drawn in to living with God and for God, and every single one, every individual hero and the nation as a whole had failed. And that's where we come to Isaiah 52 and 53, one of the hinge chapters in the whole of the Bible. And what it says to us is, this hero, if you like, this rescuer, the one that God is going to send, and that we now look back on Jesus and we say the one that God did send doesn't look how you expect him to look doesn't do what we expect him to do, doesn't live the way we expect him to live. And yet, actually more than that, because of that, he is the only one that can rescue us, the only one able to do what God needed to be done. It's by way of a little 
bit of preamble and introduction because Anne is going to come and to uh, bring us our reading. Do have open, if you would, page 740 and Isaiah 52, beginning to read at verse 13. Thank you. See, my servants will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace upon him was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his Lord, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous ser servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Hannah. Do keep that open in front of you. So in this penultimate part of what you might call a job description for a hero, a job description for a rescuer, a description, a character study of the one whom we meet in the person of Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years later. What do we begin to see in this uh, astonishing hinge chapter between Old and New Testaments? What do we see in this portrait of the one who has come, the one whom Jesus himself points as a portrait of himself. What do we see? Well, the first striking thing
thing here is just how unattractively ordinary this servant will be. Chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Here is no Greek Adonis. Here is no Clark Kent Superman. Here is not somebody that you would put on the cover of a men's or a women's magazine. Here is no supermodel or superstar. Here is the sort of person that we would simply walk past in the street without a second glance. Actually, that's quite a challenging thought, isn't it? That if you had been walking the streets of Israel-Palestine 2,000 years ago, and if you hadn't known who Jesus was, the implication is you would simply have walked past him. I wish somebody would tell that to the casting directors of Jesus' films, who unfailingly uh, um, cast those who would actually themselves quite happily be models. Actually, we get a confirmation of this in Matthew and in Mark's Gospels, when Jesus goes to preach in the temple, in the, the synagogue, in his hometown. And he stands up to speak, and there are grumbles in the crowd. There's a real rumble of discontent. And what they say about him, Matthew 13 quotes them, as saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? In other words, really? This one? He's just too ordinary. Too ordinary. It's vital for our lives of following Jesus, our lives of responding to the love that God's given us in Jesus, to remember that God, most of the time, in most of our lives, works in his remarkable and life-changing ways in ordinary things and ordinary people and ordinary times and ordinary seasons. Now, I believe in a God of miracles. I've seen remarkable, staggering, life-changing miracles. And some of them are extraordinary. And some of those miracles feel very ordinary indeed. See, God is no less at work. In fact, far more commonly at work in our day-to-day -day lives, just as he was in the carpenter's son in a hometown overlooked. He's at work in the ordinary, ordinarily magnificent and mostly unnoticed love of mothers and fathers too, giving themselves for their children. That self-sacrificing, self-effacing, hard work of nappy changes, homework helping, relationship counselling, tantrum uh, putting up with, parenting. God's at work in those seemingly chance yet vital meetings, conversations, phone calls that change people's lives. God's at work in the countless ordinary but uncelebrated acts of compassion of one person for another, even and often for a complete stranger. God's at work in the ordinary, unflashy, stumbling, halting attempt that some of us have on our better days to try and communicate a little bit of our faith to our family or to a friend or to a work colleague. God's at work in our very ordinary attempts to pray, to read the Bible each day, to meet with others in prayer, to be generous in our giving, to praise, to worship him, even when we don't feel like doing any of the above. God is at work in the ordinary 
every day. He was in Jesus, that man you'd have just walked past in the street, the one born into the most ordinary of ordinary families in the most ordinary bit of an ordinary place. Actually, part of the challenge of hearing what Isaiah says is this. Don't miss the God of magnificent miracles in the ordinary stuff of everyday ordinary lives. There's a beautiful prayer. I mentioned it in my Lent email today, for those of you who are reading through the Lent uh, studies. There's a magnificent prayer that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, which is the prayer of examine. It's a very simple way at the end of each ordinary day of just in a few moments asking a simple pair of questions. Where have I seen God at work today? In ordinary, down-to-earth ways. That person who spoke to me a word of kindness just when I needed it. That chance conversation that made a huge difference. That um, a gift of uh, a, a moment with a child or with a parent or with a friend. That beautiful sunrise, the sound of that blackbird singing first thing in the morning. But it also asks in that prayer of examine, where have I missed God today? Where have I not spotted him at work in the ordinary stuff of everyday life? So this suffering servant, this one who will come as the rescuer, the hero, the one who can do what only he can do to rescue us, he comes in an ordinary way. We might so easily miss him. But the second thing that strikes us about Isaiah's description of Jesus, the one who will come, is his, not just his ordinariness, but his suffering. Chapter 52, verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Or moving on to verse 3 in the next chapter, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And then verse 8, we read that by oppression and judgment he was taken away that he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he will be stricken. Suffering isn't what we associate with superheroes. Quite the opposite. I think at a gut level, we associate suffering with failure, don't we? Sometimes we associate suffering with failure because, if we're honest, we need to find a reason why it won't happen to us. Yeah, uh, A terrible accident or a terrible illness happens to somebody else, and we need to know there's a reason it happened to them so that we can say, well, it won't happen to me, or it won't happen to us. Or when things do go wrong in our own lives, there is this gut-gnawing, almost visceral fear that maybe I have done something to deserve this. Uh, you know, that I must have done some terrible sin or God must be really displeased with me. I've met people who are basically complete atheists who are still sure that they must have done something to deserve what's come their way. But, this is really important to hear, the Christian faith is not a religion of karma. Jesus makes that very clear. Some of his friends, the disciples, come up to him and they say to him, Jesus... You know, this tower fell on this group of people in Siloam and killed a whole load of them. Who sinned? Was it them or their parents or their parents' parents? Where in the generations did they deserve that? And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. It's not like that. 
But nor is the Christian faith a religion of just randomness and chance. It believes, and we believe, that behind and underneath our experience of the brokenness of this world isn't, yes, isn't an individual zapping of each individual for the things they've done wrong, but is a symptom of a world that is broken. That gut, visceral sense that we have that the world is not the way it's meant to be, that the world isn't meant to be broken in the way that our creation is broken, that people aren't meant to be broken in the way that our hearts get broken and we break the hearts of others that disaster and accident and disease is not the way the world's meant to be, that actually that is true, that that visceral gut sense is correct, and that those things are a symptom of a deep disease at the hearts of humanity. And that deep disease comes down to one thing, and one thing only, that as a humanity, we've turned our backs on the source of life and the source of perfect and perfection. Now, once again, that's not an individual one-by-one zapping. You did this, so you get that. You did this, so you get that. It is, for all humanity, a reminder that we have turned our backs on our maker, on the one who loves us, on the one who's given everything for us. Suffering is not the sign of your failure, but it is a reminder of our turning our backs on the God who loves us the God who's given everything for us, the God whose gift of life is for us. And so this servant plunges right into the heart of that suffering. And we see in the life of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, those accounts that we're going to come back to again and again through the Easter time, he receives the very worst that humanity can throw at him, the very worst by way of torture and barbarism and horrendous death. But here's the heart of it. He doesn't do it simply because he's ordinary. He doesn't do it simply to show solidarity with you and with me. He does it because we need rescue. He does it because the brokenness of this world tells us that we need help, that we can't rescue ourselves. You see, the Christian faith may not be a a, a faith of karma, but nor is it a faith of bootstrapping pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that thing which we know actually is logically impossible. We cannot rescue ourselves. We need one who is to come and to rescue us from the disaster of lives lived distant from the source of life. And so to use the the legal picture language of this passage, if the outcome, or if you like to use this picture language, punishment of my life lived separate from God is to die separate from God, I'm in trouble. Because I can do something about it. I can pay, if you like, that punishment. But if the thing I need to pay is my life itself, I have nothing left to enjoy the outcome with. Does that make sense? If, if actually the outcome of a life lived with my back turned towards God is to die with my back turned towards God, well, it's, it's done, it's dusted, but so am I. And that's where we come to this beating heart, not just of this passage, not just of Isaiah, not just of the Old Testament, but of the whole of the Scriptures, that this rescuer, this hero, comes not to zap people with a a force field or some great force, but comes to plunge into suffering in order to take the full weight on his shoulders rather than on ours. 
to die that death that you and I would otherwise have to face alone, to face for himself and on our behalf that separation from God that we should never have to face. For in living a life without sin, a life lived not separate from God, not with his back, turned to God, lived in intimate, moment-by-moment relationship with God, living a life that the writer here is able to describe in verse 9 as having done no violence nor having any deceit in his mouth. He is able to, verse 12, pour out his life to death, to be numbered with the transgressors, to bear the sin of many and to make intercession for the transgressors so that I can be forgiven, so that I can be carried even through death, so that I can live that life that I long for. And that means, verse 10, that his life becomes an offering made for my life. That in pouring out his life for me, he gives me the gift I couldn't get for myself. It brings us back full circle to where we started. Every hero's story has a dire situation that cannot be rescued for themselves. Every hero's story says that here is the one person that can save us using only the powers that they bring. And what Isaiah says to, the, to God's Old Testament people is, you know you in exile, you don't just need rescued from exile, you need rescued from the consequences of humanity's back turned on God. And you've got a choice. You can pay it yourself or you can allow the suffering servant to give his life for your life. You can carry on your own shoulders the full weight of what the world has done, or you can allow him to carry that weight on his shoulders in your stead. We often use this little paragraph, don't we, in our confession. We talk about Jesus living that perfect life we couldn't live for ourselves. We talk about Jesus dying that death that we don't have to face on our own. And we talk about him rising to gain for us a life we could not gain for ourselves. And that's the good news at the heart of Easter. That's the good news at the heart of communion that we're about to enjoy together. That we don't believe in a bootstrap faith where you have to pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps, where you have to be good enough for your maker because you cannot be. Nor do we believe in a karma faith where you simply reap what you sow, and actually, if we're honest, that simply means you are pretty much toast. Instead, we believe in a faith of grace, a God who in Jesus gives himself for us, Jesus giving his life for my life, his death in place of my death, his forgiveness so that I can be forgiven, the suffering servant dying in my place. So don't miss the gift of God in the ordinary stuff of your life this week. That's where you'll find him, in the ordinary gift of each day's breath, in the ordinary gift of relationship and compassion in generosity, in relationship with him. Don't miss what suffering tells us, which is this is not the way life is meant to be. And every time we roar into the darkness that we don't want to live like life like this anymore, the answer we receive is no, and nor should you. Instead, we are to long for the gift of life itself, given in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We need a rescuer, and that rescuer is the suffering servant, the one who offers you and offers me the gift of forgiveness and of life.